0: Here we go. What Yahweh has done this summer is give us a new wineskin. Uh, God is love has become the oil that we were immersed into to take pieces in us that were old and dried out and make them fresh and pliable or stretchable again. Some of you, and this is I say this in love, but, but some of you have not finished that. And maybe some of you never started that. And if that's you, What is now being poured out, what we're going to start talking about today, um, will not be able to stretch you like it wants to. It might even burst your wineskin. But for those who have been present, active, and involved in what the Lord has been doing, individually, in the family, in our culture... Or for those of you that are just coming into the family, the Lord brought you in at this time for a specific purpose. This new wine of presence and encounter and revelation and love will stretch us in the most beautiful way. i got to fix this before it drives me crazy. Um, Give me one second. There we go. I need somebody up here to help me. Okay, I think it's... There, perfect. In Luke 3, 17, John the baptizer says, and he says this about Jesus, he says this. He says, he, Jesus, is ready to separate the chafe from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chafe with never-ending fire. Anybody heard this growing up, Luke 3? Separate the wheat from the chafe. Um... Until, until separated, the wheat and the chaff are one, okay? Until they're, se- am I saying that word right? Is that the right word? C-A- C-H, chaff? Is it chaff? Is it chaff? Chaff. Chaff. All right. Chaff. Until separated, the wheat and the chaff are one, okay? Until they're separated, they're one. To separate them with a winnowing fork you would throw them into the air, into the wind, and the chaff, being lighter, would blow away and separate. This is how they separated them, okay? I've taught this before, but, you know, just just for uh, repeating it. Um, You would take wheat, you would take your winnowing pitchfork, and you would throw it in the air into wind, and as the wind blew, it would separate the lighter from the heavier, and it would separate the chaff from the wheat, Okay? So when John's saying this, is something very familiar to them. But until they're separated, they're one. The chaff is a protective coating over the wheat so that it can grow correctly. Okay? So while they're one, one isn't bad. You know what I'm saying? So we'll read this and say, oh, the chaff is the bad and the wheat is the good. No. When they're together, the wheat cannot grow without the chaff. It's the protective coating. They're one thing. So what is John saying when he says that Jesus is coming to separate these two? To separate them, throw them in the air, wind would blow, they would separate. Often, people have used this to say that people are chaff, but that in the context of John's statement, doesn't work considering the chaff is a part of the wheat until it's grown. You know what I mean? So people read this and say, oh yeah, see, all those druggies over there, they're the chaff, and all these good people over here, they're the wheat, and he's come to separate them too. And John's saying, no, he's come to separate the chaff and the wheat within you. You know what I'm saying? He's not coming to separate you from people. He's not coming to tell you, you be in the world, but you never touch anybody else in the world. Being in the world and not of the world is exactly what John's talking about. But being in the world and not of the world is not you being in the world and shunning the rest of the world. It's you being in the world and the world not controlling you, you controlling it. You know what I'm saying? So what, what John is saying is Jesus is coming to take the chaff out of you so that you can be pure wheat. So chaff is a part of the wheat until it's grown. Another analogy that might be a little more relatable is orange juice and pulp. Anybody else, anybody like pulp in their orange juice? I actually kind of like it a little bit. Jordan hates it. Jordan hates pulp, especially in lemonade, too. Um, I'll get, we'll get Chick-fil-A, and we'll get home, and Jordan will get out the, the uh, what's it called, the, the strainer and be pouring her drink through it. But anyway, anyway. But think about this. You got orange juice or lemonade, and you got pulp, Okay. So another way you could say that is Jesus has come to separate the juice from the pulp. They're one thing, okay, right? They're one thing, but he's come to separate them. The pulp is just as much a part of the juice as the liquid is. In fact, you can't have the liquid without the pulp, right? But it just makes the juice, if you're not a fan of it, it makes the juice less tasty or good, Therefore, you separate it through a strainer. The juice is not as palatable with pulp. It's required to have it to make juice. But once it's made, you separate the pulp from the juice so that it can actually be consumed. What Jesus came to do was remove the chafe from us worthless mindsets that covered who we really were so that only authentic wheat identity remained. And then he burned in an everlasting fire, God being the all-consuming fire, the worthless mindset and the fall and its facade so that we as believers could never retrieve it again. This is what he did on the cross. It is finished. What is finished? We've talked about this forever. What is finished? The covering that covered up who you really were got thrown into the air by the Holy Spirit, and what remained was who you really were that was put to death on the cross and finished for every single person who's in the family of God. Okay. The Old Testament... I'm going to take a little, little rabbit trail, but we'll get back. The Old Testament law became a law of works because we made it a law of works. Okay? God was not giving them, through the law, a law of karma. Just to be clear, like, and I know I've said this before, what is karma? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. You get what you put out. Right? Through the Old Testament, the Lord was not giving them a law of karma. He was not saying, if you do this, you get this. But if you do this... You get that. And if you're not careful, you'll read that into the Old Testament. But that's not what the Old Testament was given. He was giving them a window into what their lives should look like if they lived in their proper identity. He gave them what's called a law of life, not a law of death. He gave them a law of life that became a law of death when they processed it incorrectly. It's a law that says, if you are who you are, your life will look like this. We have the same thing in Jesus. For example, if our identity is right, we will look like Jesus. We don't strive to look like Jesus so that we can be identified like Jesus. We are like Jesus by the cross, therefore we live our lives like Jesus. Okay, I said this in holiness a few weeks ago. We don't strive to be holy so that we can be called holy. We are holy, therefore we live holy. Yeah, right? So, what the old testament, Good Lord. What the old testament law was not was not if you do this, you get this. What the old testament law was was you are this, therefore do this. And it was. And by the way, it wasn't even called a law; it was called a covenant that we translated into a law. Proverbs 3, you know what Proverbs 3.18 says? I'm going to take this by memory, so don't, I'm, it's not a direct quote. Proverbs 3.18 says, wisdom is a tree of life. Well, in the in the times of when Solomon would have written this, in, in the Jewish mindset, wisdom was Torah. Okay? So Torah, the law, we would call it, covenant, was wisdom. So you can say it like this. The Torah is a tree of life. Right? What was the tree of life? The one they should have been eaten from. That they didn't. That was off limits. But now, in Proverbs, it's saying if you consume the covenant, what we would call the law, it becomes a tree of life within you. Okay? So, So he didn't give them something that was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. What was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Do this, get this. If you eat of this, you will die. The tree of life was... This is who you are, so eat of me. So when Proverbs is written, Solomon says that the law, the covenant, the Torah, is a tree of life. Okay? So we saw the law, and we said, I must do that to get that, when it should have been, I am that, therefore my life looks like that. That's exactly why Jesus did not come to abolish or throw out the law, Matthew five seventeen. He came to fulfill it. What? So, right? So we, see, we traditionally see the Old Testament as a works-based testament and the New Testament as a faith-based testament. That's typically how we see it. Wrong. Because Jesus said, I haven't come to throw that away. I've come to fulfill it in me. So it's illegal for us to say the Old Testament is something different than the New Testament through Jesus because Jesus says, I've not come to throw that away. I've come to be the bridge between you and that so that it can come together in me. I've come to fill that. So this is why Jesus says this. He came to put it in its right place through him who, by the way, John says, is the word. He came to be an example of how the law was supposed to interact with us. Jesus came to be the example of how we should have responded to the law and responded perfectly. How did he respond? Well, the law says you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. What did Jesus do? Most of the Sabbaths, he's doing some kind of ministry work. So Jesus came to redefine in us. The law was not given for you to say, okay, that, 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 I can't do on the Sabbath, but that, 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 I can, and therefore I'm going to be holy. No, Jesus says the law was meant to give you permission to do what you felt like you could never do before. It's a covenant, okay? So he came to be the example of how the law was supposed to interact with us. Then he gave us a new law or a new covenant to mirror, which wasn't the written word. It was the physical word himself. Y'all tracking with me? Okay. The mistake people make is viewing Jesus in our new life the way that israel viewed the old law in other words people make the mistake of viewing jesus as if you do this you get or you become this and they miss that the very reason we were given a law in the first place which is actually called a covenant was because we were already identified i didn't marry jordan when i i didn't marry her when i met her right I married her when I identified her as somebody I wanted to be married to. Okay? So when we said, I do, we had already become husband and wife in our mindset, which produced, I do. So I labeled her as my wife, therefore, we got married. So I I didn't enter into a covenant with somebody I didn't know or somebody that had the potential to be that. I entered into a covenant with somebody who already was that. So when he gives the covenant to Israel, he gave them the covenant because way back in Genesis 15, he said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Therefore, I'm going to enter into this covenant with you and I'm going to take both sides of the covenant on myself so that you can live in it whether or not you keep it the rest of your days. he, He did not give them a contract like I talked about two weeks ago that said if you do this, we're good, but if you don't do this, we're not good. But this is how we view Jesus. We made a marriage covenant, a law to be broken and prosecuted against. This is what we did. We made it a law of you keep, excuse me, we made it a law you keep to be good and not punished, but a covenant you keep because you love and the other has already determined you're good and loved look look at your experience with god how much of your experience with god at the core has been based on what you do let I me mean, just think, th- just think about this how many of your how many of our experiences with god has at the core been about what we do repeat this read this say this sing this, etc., and you feel closer every single time you do that stuff. I feel close to the Lord every time I wake up in the morning, read my Bible, spend an hour in prayer, and get to the end of it. I feel great with the Lord. But do you know why I feel great with the Lord? Because in my mind, I just did what I thought I needed to do to stay in good graces. Not, I'm, the Lord might have just showered something amazing on me, but the reason I'm feeling good about that is because I checked off the box. That's exactly why if the next morning you sleep in and you don't get to spend an hour in prayer, you feel awful about it and you feel distant. And because every bit of our experience, we've been taught that our whole lives, that our experience with God has something to do with what we do and how he responds to what we do or don't do. All of it. So think about this. How many times have you felt close just because you simply are? Like right now, how many of you feel so close that it's a marriage intimacy with the Lord, not because of what you've done today, but simply because you're breathing? Very few of us. I struggle with this. Awful. Very few. That's why many of us have trouble showing up sometimes when the Lord wants to move in our lives, whether that be at church or whether that be in the secret place. The reason we have trouble showing up is because subconsciously, let's be real, who wants to engage a God that we only feel approves of us if we do something? This is why people struggle with showing up at church. Because it's not because they don't like church. It's because they're doing something else that's more important. But if they keep doing, they're appeasing. Sometimes showing up to the secret place or showing up to church or showing up to worship or whatever, or Tuesday night, showing up to that stuff means you're going to have to lay down something that you do. And when you lay down something that you do, something on the inside of your gut says, something's not going to be accomplished because I've got to do. When our response should be, if I keep diving deeper into who I am, whatever needs to be done will get done because I have an Abba. But, but this is not how we think. We think in terms of do. Many subconsciously try to avoid it, showing up to that place with the Lord, by doing better things or being too busy. I've done this a ton in my life. And that works for your thinking because you live in a law of do. But if you're in a covenant of you are, proximity becomes the law, and what was once your works becomes the fruit of your tree. So. So I don't show up to worship because it's my Christian duty. I show up to worship because being around you guys stokes the flames of intimacy. Major difference. So I don't leave feeling better about myself because I sang three songs. I leave feeling better about my proximity because I was around you guys who were also in proximity. This is how the body works. We don't show up so that we we feel good. We show up because there's something that you and you and you and you and you and you and you can give to my spirit that I personally, on my own, cannot give myself. But together, we can. It's like if you have one stream. I've used an example over the past few years. But if you have one stream rolling down a mountain, you're going to get a certain amount of water, right? If you have a 100 streams pouring into the same river, you're going to have an overflowing river, Right? So what the church is, is all these streams coming together so that it begins to fill until the point of overflow, and the overflow begins to pour out into people out here that we could not reach if we tried without the overflow. All right. This is what Yahweh has shifted this summer. From a consciousness of you do to a consciousness of you are. And those who have finished the process will bear fruit and have a yearning to be in the place that stirs the flames of proximity every single day. Those of us that did not finish this process are going to hear this and say, praise God, I don't have to do as much. But it's still about doing. The aim has not changed and we're still stuck in the trap of us being identified by what we either do or even what we don't do. So, so I, for the past few years, I haven't heard of this criticism, but spiritual fathers have, that when you teach love and you teach grace and you teach you know, all the truths of all that stuff, the pushback from the church people is, if you keep teaching that, people are going to stop showing up. Because our whole system was built on fear. I've got to make you so afraid that you have to show up to church, right? But if we start teaching grace and love and, you know, all that stuff, and and still the tough stuff as well, but if we start teaching that from the right, God is love. A lot of people hear that and say, well, praise God, if he's love, why show up? He's still going to love me. Yeah, he is. He absolutely is. Not going to change anything. Except we're not here to just scoot by. If I, if me and Jordan, if y'all knew the ins and outs of mine and Jordan's relationship, and you found out that I only talked to her once a week, if that, maybe once a month, every one of you would petition for me to be fired. Hopefully, I'd petition myself to be fired. I mean, that's you know what I'm saying. So we would look at that and say, that's that's not what a covenant's supposed to be like. And yet, we make let's be real, we make excuses for people that treat the Lord like that because the church traditionally has been about what we do. And as long as you do this and do this and tithe, you're good. That's not, I'm not here for y'all to do that. I'm not here for me to do that. I'm not here for us to feel better about showing up. I'm here for us to show up because there's something here that stirs the flame. And if it doesn't stir your flame, don't show up. Because that's all we're here for. You know, you know what I'm saying? I've been reading this uh, Eugene Peterson, I know I've talked about it a lot, Eugene Peterson autobiography, and It's amazing. But he, uh, it's just real about his struggles and stuff that he went through as a pastor. But he got to the point as a pastor where he went to his congregation, uh, went to his elders, and uh, and he said, I quit. And this was like a few years into starting the church. And they said, why do you quit? And I'm going to leave out the language. But he, but he said, I'm sick and tired of running this church. And, uh, and so this is the guy who translated the message. And um, I'm like, man, he cussed. Y'all cussed. Y'all watched the game yesterday, South Carolina game. But anyway, um, but but he, uh, and they, they responded with, like, what are you talking about? And he'd gotten so in the groove of running the church and meeting with people and doing all this stuff, neglecting his family, that he was just burned out. And so he went on a one year sabbatical, not just a month, a year sabbatical. And got rewilded again, and it shifted everything. All of his books have come from that since then. Message translation, all that stuff came from that. But it, but it hit me reading this, and he made a, he made a statement to this guy. He passed away last year, but he made a statement to the guy writing this. And he said, and I, I quoted this a few weeks ago, but he said, no, no church can healthily be more than a few hundred people. And then later on in his life, he changed that statement, and he said it can't be healthy unless it's about 50 or 60 people. And he said the reason is, is because pastors will become entertainers to keep everybody in the doors rather than fathers. There's a reason why me and Jordan don't have 100 kids, and it's because I can't adequately father 100 kids. You know what I'm saying? But I can't father one or three or four or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And so this is, the Lord is just it's refocusing everything in us. But again, if we're not careful, we'll come into this and say, man, this thing ain't growing. Yes, it absolutely is growing. It just isn't growing numerically. Praise God. Some of y'all are gonna be mad that I just said praise God after that. You know what I'm saying? But there's people in this room that are becoming wild and free, and I'll take wild and free of a handful over a thousand people who pretend to be wild and free and pretend to be involved and pretend to care until somebody talks bad about them or I say something they don't like, and then they leave. All right, didn't have that in my notes, but anyway. <clears throat> let me let me just let me just, just just give you this, and then I'm gonna go into Luke. Um, this week, as I said in worship, we we went to the beach. And I thought you know, every time we go to the beach or on vacation or you know whatever, um, I have the assumption the Lord's going to just download some amazing thing. And so, uh, so I sit there, I got my my notebook open, my pen. I'm like, all right, here we go, it's going to be amazing. And that's what he said. You know what? I'm going to teach you this week. I'm going to teach you how to be a better husband. And I was like, I amazing. What else? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's awesome. Let's learn that. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't think you understand. Like, that's all. That's it. Right, okay. And it hit me that like what what we did last week is we got away, me and Jordan and Veda and, and our family got away from the noise and Jordan and I, we sat on a golf cart, you know, whatever day, and I was just like, I feel like we've fallen in love again. Not that we weren't in love before, but it's just like a whole new like level. And um and there's something about getting away from the craziness that can just like recenter you and refocus you. But, it, but that's, it hit me this week that, like, I, I have gotten so, in four years, I keep saying five, but it's really four in November, years of this church, um, I've gotten sometimes so bogged down in running the church or making sure the church is going or making sure that you guys are fed that, like, internally I've lost a little bit of my wild and free. And, um, and I made a vow to the Lord this week that, like, no matter what it costs, I won't lose that again. Ever. And that means that there's gonna be a lot of stuff I have to say no to in order to keep it, and I'm gonna to have to be okay with that. You guys are gonna to have to be okay with that. You know what I'm saying? Um, but here's why I say this is because I, I think as usually as a pastor, like there's some stuff the Lord sends me through because I'm supposed to be the shepherd to lead you guys into it as well. And I think there's some stuff in our lives that we've allowed to slide into this place of worship. Because like I've said, every year, the, the greatest amount of worship you can give is two things, your money and your time. That's, that it, you, if you want to know what you worship, look at what you spend your time on and what you spend your money on. You know what I'm saying? And there's some stuff that has slid into that place of time or slid into that place of money or both that we've started worshiping and it's caused the internal identity within us to start crumbling. And I'm telling you, over the next little bit, that's what we're going to invigorate. There's going to be some Tuesday nights coming up. We're just going to go out to the river, and we're just going to have fun. That's it. And that's going to be the spirituality of this church. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, like I love praying in tongues. I love all that stuff. But listen, if we don't know what's real, and praying in tongues is real, but I'm saying if we don't have a grasp on what is real and what is tangible and what is around us, it doesn't matter how many hours we pray in tongues. You know what I mean? But but if we got a grasp on what is real and tangible and with us, all of a sudden that stuff comes in to reinvigorate what is real and tangible and in front of us. That's what it was designed to do. That's why Paul says, I'd rather you prophesy than speak in tongues. Because when you speak in tongues, nobody knows what's going on around you. But if you prophesy, it benefits everybody else. And what he's saying is, is, I'd rather you speak into what's real and then let the tongues and all the other stuff pour into what is real than to float around in a fantasy world where you don't have a clue what's going on around you there lord there's a there's a a people call it the new age thing i didn't know what this was until somebody mentioned it to me a few weeks ago new age um but apparently it's the thing and it's basically this thing in today's age where people are very into spirituality you know, like like spirits and all that stuff. And it's, so, it's, it's, it's a carbon copy of the Greek world in the New Testament, carbon copy, with Plato and floaty and getting out of this life and into the next and tapping into the spirits. And like, you know, that, that's just what's going on around us. You know what I mean? Like, it's all you hear. And, um, and so what the, what the church has done is we've taken that and we've kind of started living in that as well, where all we care about is what is floaty and fantasy and out there and all that stuff. And we've lost grasp, of what is real and in front of us. So, all we talk about is we sit around, sing kumbaya, and wait around for the rapture while the world around us is crumbling to the ground. Because we don't care about the world around us, we care about the spiritual floaty stuff. And I'm you, right, you know what I'm saying? It's like, y'all, listen, if y'all want to sit around and talk about conspiracy theories and you know, kumbaya and the rapture and how you know everybody wants to be a social club and all, if y'all want to sit around and do that, amazing, amazing, y'all do that. But as for me and my house, we're going to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not your kingdom come, your will be done, but hopefully I get out of here first. That's not what we're praying. We're saying I'm going to be seated right here no matter what's going on around me until your kingdom comes and your will is done here. Right here as it is in heaven. You know what I'm saying? I I, I want to get to heaven, but I'm going to just make a big statement. Heaven's going to be amazing. Um, but I, I believe our call is to make sure this is heaven before we ever make it to that one. All right. <laughs> or else he shouldn't have told us to pray it. When you pray, Abba, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What? That's not what we pray. We pray, get us get us out of here quick. You know what I'm saying? A Democrat got elected. Get us out of here. Or whatever. You know, and It's like, Lord, like your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. I don't care who's the president. I don't care what's going on around us. I don't care what the, 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 the trendy you know, thing to be passionate about is. I don't care. The prayer is your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're here for. We're not shaken. And if you'll get off social media, you as well could be passionate about that too. All right. So. Yahweh in us is separating the wheat from the chaff. The question is, we're going to talk about this for a minute. Here's the question. Which one are you clinging to? Yahweh in us is separating the wheat and the chaff, but the question is is which one are you clinging to or identifying with? All right. Luke 5, I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 and then I'm going to read 17 through I won't tell you where Um, because then you won't follow along with me. Here we go. NLT, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God, which is really funny how he says that, because Jesus is the word of God speaking the word of God. But Verse 2. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, and the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, who would later be Peter, his owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out, is really important, now go out to where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again in deeper water. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners into the other boat. If you've seen the chosen, this is kind of a cool little scene in the beginning. Um, But he called the others to help, and soon their boats, or excuse me, soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Here's how he responds. Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as, they, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed. Now, before I go on, let me just point out a couple of things right here. Okay. In verse 4, Jesus tells them to go where it is deeper. In deeper water. They had been the, the context, they had been fishing apparently in shallower water. And Jesus looks at them and says, Why don't you go into the deeper water and cast your nets there? Okay. In verse 5, here's how they respond. They respond, listen, we worked our tails off last night and didn't catch anything. But if you say so, we'll let our nets down again. Okay. Simon's response later on, they catch all the fish, they're overflowing, all that stuff. And when he goes back to Jesus, he responds, Lord, leave me. I'm such a sinful man okay, Simon's response, later Peter, was, I'm a sinner. Why? Because remember, the religious system was based on cause and effect. You get what you do, and what you do becomes what you get, right? So Jesus says, go to deeper water, cast out your net again. They respond, go to deeper water, cast out their net, and they catch so many fish they can't even hold them. When he does that, when that happens, Simon thinks back to the night before when they worked their tails off and didn't catch anything, and it strikes him that the reason they didn't catch anything was because they were sinners. Because remember, this is the religious system. This is why they cast all the sick people to Gehenna, to the air. The reason they pushed all these sick people away was because they believed if you're sick, it's because you sinned. Okay? This is why Jesus heals so many sick people. He has compassion on them, but he also comes to show them it wasn't their sin that made them sick. Okay, But Simon responds and says, I'm a sinful man. Peter believed, Simon at the time, but Peter believed that it was his sin that caused them not to catch the fish the first time. No, it was his lack of proximity to Jesus that went into a depth that Simon Peter had not gone before. I gotta say this one more time. One more time. Okay? Remember, they were fishing in shallower water, didn't catch anything. Jesus tells them to go into the deep, and with Jesus present, diving into the depth of the water they had not gone before, suddenly they start catching all these fish, right? Peter believed it was a sin that kept them from catching the fish, and it was not. It was their lack of proximity to Jesus that went into a depth they had not gone before. So think Eastern, okay? Not Western. A Western mind would read this story and say, well, man, that is amazing. Jesus gave them all these fish. No, who cares? Forget about the fish. You know what I'm saying? That's, the whole point of this story is not to say, well, brother, Jesus gave them a lot of fish. Stop caring about the fish. Great. That's, that's amazing. But the Eastern mindset, which this was written in, says, what is this telling me? This is what this is saying. Jesus came to get at the heart or the depth of our delusion, what is our delusion? Sin, hamartia, broken mindset, identity, hamartia, ha, without maros mar- uh, form, without form. Okay, Peter responds and says, "I'm a sinful man." Jesus says, "Stop caring about that. Don't be afraid. It was, what what Jesus? It wasn't your sin." You ready? It wasn't your sin that kept you from catching fish and working hard. It was the fact that your works were toiling in the shallow part of the water that kept you from catching fish. But now that I'm here with you, we've gone into a depth you have not gone before, and there you begin to catch stuff. There you begin to catch so much stuff you don't even have room to put it. Right, So some of us have worked and worked and worked and worked and worked in the shallow end of our identity to try to figure out our problems. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to partner with you to go into the depth of it. And when we get there, we're going to catch so much stuff effortlessly, by the way. So much stuff that you're no, not going to have room to even process it. Okay. And then he says this. From now on, you'll be fishing or going into the depths for people. Now think about this, okay? Because we went fishing this week, and it's kind of nasty, but with this next part, what do you do when you catch fish if you don't throw them back? You clean them. Why do you clean them? To get all the bad parts out so that you can consume the good parts. Peter... Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. What is he saying? (laughs) What is he saying? He's saying from now on, you're going to go into the depths and you're going to clean people. Having the depth of his identity, Peter's, caught and cleaned, he now feels the trust to drop everything and live for proximity. Peter encounters this when Jesus first shows up, he's like, "Listen, I know I know who you are, Master, but we worked all night. But if you say so, we'll try it. The story starts there, and it ends with them dropping everything, which by the way, for Peter would have been a lucrative business. I mean, a ton of money, a big business. Leaves everything and follows Jesus. How did Peter, in a few verses, go from "I don't know about this, but we'll just try it. We'll throw a dart in the wall see if it sticks. We'll or uh, what did I say this week? Throw spaghetti on the wall see what sticks. But we'll we'll just try it and see what happens." To "I'm dropping everything and I refuse to leave this man again." How did he get from that? Jesus went into the depth of the part of him that said the reason his works didn't work was because he was a sinner. And rewired him to see it wasn't because he was a sinner. It's because the Son of Man had not come to reach into the depth yet. But now that the Son of Man was here to reach into the depth of the identity that was broken, now you can trust enough to leave everything and follow me. And on top of that, you're going to leave everything and follow me, and you're going to teach other people to leave everything and follow me as well. So what I've done in you is going to overflow into what you're going to do for everybody else. And Peter later becomes the rock of the church. This is good stuff. So you know, um, verse seventeen. Not because it came from me. Verse seventeen. Let me skip ahead to there, and I'm gonna show you how this connects. Now, if you read the the man with the leprosy, this all connects too. But I'm just trying to I'm trying to get to the heart of it. So, jump to seventeen. One day, keep all that I just said in mind. Everything I just said, you got to keep it in mind because it's all together. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up, in parentheses, from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. The Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof, they took off the tiles, and they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Listen, seeing their faith, Pistis, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sin is forgiven. I know your translations say sins are, that's wrong. In the Greek it's one, it's hamarteia, it's one, one sin. Your sin is forgiven. That may not mean a lot to you, that means a ton to me in context. But, young man, your sin is forgiven. What? But the Pharisees and teach remember, why did they why for the Pharisees, why was this man paralyzed? To the Pharisees and teachers of the law, this man was paralyzed because of his sin. Right? So they're watching this. Jesus knows they're watching this. They lower the man down, and before he says, get up and walk, he says, your sins are forgiven, while the man is still paralyzed. Okay. Your sin is forgiven. The Pharisees, of course, and the teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Do you see the irony in this? Because Jesus is God. No. <laughs> That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everybody watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We've seen amazing things today. So, so, okay. The connection with Peter... Now flows to this paralyzed man. Jesus is pulling apart identity. The man comes down, and before Jesus says one thing about his paralyzed body, Jesus speaks to the identity within him first that became the healing of his paralyzed body. What did he tell Peter? Cast your nets deeper. Well, we worked all night in the shallow and didn't catch anything. Go deeper paralyzed man comes in, all he's asking for is to be healed. And Jesus says, now we're going to go a little bit deeper. Your sin is forgiven. Huh? Thanks a lot. That's amazing. But I can't walk still. You know what I'm saying? Right? And he's saying, no, I understand about the fact you can't walk, but the you can't walk part pales in comparison to the you don't know who you are part. So I'm going to fix who you are. And then that's going to become the progenitor to you becoming the man who can walk again. And the Pharisees hate this. They're okay if Jesus heals the man. What they're not okay with is Jesus messing with what they have kept this man in or out of the system for, which is his sin. And Jesus comes to forgive not just the sin... He comes to forgive the mindset that caused this man to believe it was because of something he did that he was living like he was. No, Jesus said it's not because of who you are. It's because I brought you into this place to prove to everybody else that this is why I have come. Not just to heal people, but to fix identity that becomes their healing. Verse twenty-seven. Later, Jesus left the town and he saw a tax collector who the Jews would have been. The Jews would have considered a Sinner, okay, because he was a defector named Levi, who was Matthew, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Lord, like, there's so much missing here. Come on, Luke. But you, so Matthew, what, what? Matthew is a rich dude, very, very rich. And Jesus comes walking by and says, Follow me. All right. Leaves everything. Huh? Right? But, but he knows who Jesus is. I mean, this, this just wasn't like this Jesus showed up and was just this random guy. Matthew, at his tax collector, Jesus, I said this earlier, Jesus and his mother would have paid taxes to Matthew over and over again. And what, like, what were those encounters like? Think about this. What were those encounters like? When Jesus is standing as a teenager or an adult before he's 30, at the tax collector's booth, and a poor guy comes up, or somebody comes up that's about to sell themselves as a slave because they can't pay their taxes, and Jesus says, it's okay, I'll take it. So so Matthew has seen this over and over and over and over again. And I guarantee you, in his book, there's a list this long of taxes that Jesus owed because he took them for everybody else. You know what I'm saying? So he knows who Jesus is. This isn't something new. And Jesus, this man, comes walking by and he says, Matthew, it's time to give up the game. Follow me. And Matthew, something on the inside of him says, if I can get within me what this man for years has had within him, I'll let go of all of it. So he leaves. Everything follows him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees, here we go, and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? That's, I mean, does that sound familiar? I mean, let's be real. The, hello, church? Like, you know what I'm saying? How many, how many people have we called scum that Jesus is called to lead the next movement? We're going to find out. Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but I've come to call those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I've not come to call the posers that are pretending like they're righteous when they're not. I've come to call those who are completely okay being exactly who they are no matter how dark it is. At least if you know who you are, we got something to work with. And then he goes on, verse thirty three, one day some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples pray and fast regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, I'm about to really mess with some of y'all, so I apologize in advance. Jesus responded, Do wedding guests feast or excuse me, fast? While celebrating with the groom, of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So many people have read that verse and said, that's where we are right now. Jesus is present. So, I mean, just to give you some context, I'm not preaching on this. Just to give you some context, Jesus died. He's taken from them for three days. He rises again, and then at Pentecost... Holy Spirit comes, and he's never left us since then. So they're fasting and praying in the upper room before. But anyway, so don't just, y'all, y'all just don't take this, don't take the bait. Alright. I'm not saying you shouldn't fast. I'm saying if the reason you're fasting is to get him closer, he's close. Um, so anyway, then Jesus gave them this illustration. <laughs> really, for us, this might maybe the most important uh, set of scriptures in all of scripture. But, he says, no one, now remember everything I've just told on Peter, paralyzed man, calling of Matthew, responding to the Pharisees, and he says this, No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old one. For then the new garment would be ruined, and the patch wouldn't even match the old garment. The patch would not even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin, For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Now, Luke writes something here that Mark does not write. Okay? So Mark is the passage that we've read this most often. Luke adds a statement at the end of this that is not in Mark. And he says this. Listen to this. No one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. What what had Jesus just done? Rewired Peter's world, rewired the paralyzed man's world, rewired Matthew's world. And then he makes a statement that I cannot pour new into something that's old. But the reason people refuse to become a new wineskin is because they make identity out of the old is just fine. Why do anything with that? Like, I mean, this is some of, the, some of the churches I grew up in was a lot like this. You know, like, man, we, this is just how we've always done it. Why change anything? It's always worked in the past. Why change it? Because what worked in the past wasn't really working. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, and it shouldn't. Like, if people are still doing church the way we do church in 20 years, something's wrong because the Holy Spirit's moving us glory to glory. Worship in 20 years should make this thing look like it's lost its ever-loving mind because they've so grown to a level that they're doing things up here that we were only given the grace for this season to do right here. It doesn't make us wrong. It just means they're building off of what we're doing. If they're still doing what we're doing in 20 years, somewhere along the way, when the Lord came to bring them to another level of glory, they said no. But Jesus has come, and the entire, I'm doing a commentary on the book of Luke right now, and over and over and over and over and over, what you see is Jesus coming, and everybody around him saying, we know what this is going to look like, and over and over again, Jesus saying, that is not what it's actually going to look like. Oh, oh, like Pete, can, the anticipation for a Messiah was sky high. I mean, they expected at any moment, especially with John the Baptist now saying he's coming. At any moment, the Messiah is coming. And when he shows up, he's going to kill all the Romans. He's going to be another David. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, he's going to be a David. But he's not going to be the one who got fascinated with war later in his life. He's going to be the one that was fascinated in a field with sheep in the beginning of his life. But, man, he's going to be like David. He's going to fight. He's going to take care of the Romans, and we're going to get Israel back. And then Jesus shows up, and he says, here's what we're going to do. When somebody slaps you on the cheek, give them the other one. Right? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Here's what the the law said. The law said, love those who love you. Here's what I'm telling you. You love those who don't love you. (laughs) Right? So, again, we were supposed to look at the law and say, okay, I At minimum, I'm supposed to love those who love me. But if I'm loving those who love me, I'm gonna take it a step further and love those who don't even love me. They saw the law as the God. As long as I love those who love me, I'm good. Right? Same thing with Peter. All night, working and working and working and working the shallow end of the ocean or the shallow end of the sea. All night, Jesus shows up and he says, You know what? The reason you're not catching fish is because you haven't gone deep enough. So this time, go deep enough. Paralyzed man comes down. The reason that you guys aren't seeing success in everything you're trying to do to fix this is because you're not going deep enough. He goes to Matthew, tax collector, rich dude, and he digs into the depth of who he knows Matthew wants to be, and he says, come and follow me, and I'll show you who you really are. Matthew, I mean, like, look at this. Our society today is full of people who are rich and hate life, for the most part. Uh, look at Hollywood. I mean, how the suicide rate in Hollywood is sky high. Hate life and yet have everything they've ever wanted because money cannot buy identity. And Jesus actually said if you love money, it might cost you your identity. Because there's things that you're willing to do for money that's going to go against things you have to do to lay down your life. That doesn't mean you're not going to have money. Our church is very blessed. But it means that we don't do things so that we can be blessed. We do things so that we can become who we are that receives an inheritance of blessing. So we don't keep all of our money so that we can grow our wealth. We give away 15% so that we can open the floodgates of heaven to receive His wealth. Right? You see what I'm saying? But there's a, there is a, a measure that the Lord is doing in us right now. Matt, you can go ahead and come up here because I'm I'm, I don't have that much longer. But there's a measure... Of what the Lord is doing in us right now that is telling us, it's tempting us, it's daring us to say that our whole lives we have walked around in the shallow end of our identity. And we've made some decisions, maybe, that have been tough decisions. Like us starting this church was not a tough decision. I mean, on the surface it was. At the depth of it, it would have cost me and our family every bit of identity had we not started this church. So it wasn't that tough a decision. And I didn't have an income when we started. My wife didn't have an income when we started. All we had was a savings account and trust. That's it. We had 10 people showing up every Sunday, maybe, in a theater that we had to pay lease to every single month. You know what I'm saying? but we, we didn't show up here because we were just going to be another good life-giving church. I, I didn't care about that. It's amazing. If you want to do that, I I, could, I didn't care. I didn't want to be just another church. In I fact, I didn't even care if we were called a church. What I wanted to be is what an ecclesia is supposed to be, which is a family, which is where we all come together every single week and we allow the Lord to say, cast your nets deeper and see what you will pull out. And every time we're tempted to throw them out in the shallow, that's because that's just what we know, that's what we've always done, every time we're tempted to do that, somebody else comes along and says, you're not deep enough. I mean, that, that, that's what this is. Somebody comes along and says, you know what, we're focusing on things right here when Yahweh's called us to focus on things right here, and we're never going to get the things up here unless we dive deep first. You know what I mean? Like, I could talk to you all day long about how not to be anxious. All day long, give you tips and tricks and whatever else. And A, I can promise you this. A, I wouldn't be doing most of them. So I'd be a big poser, right? And B, it wouldn't work. I I mean, I I could sit here and tell you how to have peace or how to be happy or how to do all this other stuff. And y'all leave here and feel amazing about yourself. Amazing. You know what I'm saying? But but what, what I refuse to do is to stay on the shallow end where we work and work and work and work and don't catch anything. And Jesus is saying, if you'll just drop your nets in the deep, you won't have to do anything. I'll send the fish to you. You won't have to do anything. I'll send the reason that you're so anxious to you so that it'll be so heavy in your net, you won't have time to process it. You just pull it out of the water. Like, uh, we have, I mean, Lord, we have family members that we have prayed years and years and years would come into a relationship with the Lord, would wake up and realize who they really are, would wake up and realize that their lifestyle is not who they really are. It's not what the Lord designed them for. We, for years, I know you guys do too, for years we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed, but what we cannot do is stay in the shallow end and say, man, we worked, but we didn't catch anything. The Lord is calling us to be a group of people that dives into the depths of ourselves first so that then we can do that for men and women, right? He sends Peter into the depth to catch a load of fish, and then he says, Peter, now you go do that for everybody else. It had to happen in Peter first. It had to happen in the paralyzed man first. It had to happen in Matthew first. It had to happen in all these people first before it went to everybody else. We, especially pastors today, this is the temptation, is to want to send people into things that I have not been into myself. You know what I mean? It is illegal for me to encourage you to show up to the secret place if I'm not engulfed in the secret place myself. And Most pastors don't even read their Bible. You know what I'm saying? But but what we're what we're moving into is a place Where I'm going to let my fire, and you're going to let your fire, and you're going to let your fire burn so hot that this place becomes nothing but a gigantic, all-consuming fire. That when you walk in the doors, and the minute we hit worship, the minute we hit a message, the minute that you smell breakfast cooking in the back, every piece of darkness in you that does not need to be there is suddenly shown. Cast out with light that is shone all around you. My favorite line in a song lately, and I know it's not Christmas yet, but y'all know me, I love Christmas. But my favorite line, and I mentioned this, I think it was a couple Tuesday nights ago, in a song is, O Little Town of Bethlehem. You know that song? But there's a line at the end of it that says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. We don't write music like that, you know what I'm saying? We write like you know, I I love like I want to be I'm a, I want to be tried by fire, amazing song. But what we don't write anymore is songs like that. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And I, I'm just I wonder when we've gone through a year where m- uh, most people are terrified for their lives, literally, and most people are terrified to. Think about what's going to happen in their businesses in the future. Think about what's going to happen in their schools in the future. I mean, me and Veda start school next year. We have no idea what we're going to do with her because we don't know what our country is going to look like in a year. You know what I'm saying? But it's just there's so much uncertainty and so much hope met, met with fear that I wonder if right here in a little town called Columbia if the Lord is meeting all of our fears and all of our hopes right here so that he can push us forward into your kingdom come. Like, I, I, wonder, I wonder how many of us, how many of us lately, think, I mean, just, just think about this. How many of you over the past few months have taken the time to sit down and just dream? And when I, when I mean, like, I mean clear with this. What I don't mean is dream about you getting a better job. And you, I mean that might that might be it and amazing. That, that's that's who cares? I mean, who cares? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think your career is really important. I do not think you should stake your life on your career. Lord, like, but when you dream, I'm not talking about you dreaming about what you grasping greener on the other side. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, when's the last time you sat down and dreamed about angels floating around you as you're worshiping? When's the, when's the last time that you sat down and just imagined what was happening in the spin of the Trinity when you were present in it before you ever took a breath? Yeah, right? When's the last time we sat around? When's the last time you sat and looked at a river or a sky or something and just paused and just stood in awe of it like a kid. No, we don't do that because we're so worried about what's coming up tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough trouble in itself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything you need will be given to you. Literally, do Jesus says, do not worry. But when, I mean, when when did we do this? That is the depth. That's it. Like, some of y'all are like, man, I'm just, I've been through it and I cannot find a passage to get me through it. Some of y'all need to read some poetry. Some of y'all need to read a fiction book. But we got to open our imaginations again and start to dream and wonder. We sing that song all the time. May we never lose our wonder. And we sing that as a bunch of people who have lost our wonder. (laughs) We say, may we never lose our wonder. We already lost it. I mean, think, think about all the traditional churches that start. We passed we passed some of these in Myrtle Beach. Think about all the traditional churches that started with a passion and that right now right now, are meeting with a bunch of people sitting in pews, falling asleep, talking about how we can be better or how we can do whatever, singing a couple hymns and everybody going to Cracker Barrel. Or Shoney's, if that was still a thing. That's what we used to do, right? I'm convinced that part of the reason the church lost its... A little bit of its Holy Spirit's cause Shoney's closed. But I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Anyway, like we we would have evangelists come into town and they would preach and we'd have like big hootin' and hollering time and then we'd all go to Shoney's and, and glutton like crazy. But um <laughs> you know what I mean? Um uh, <laughs> nothing says the Lord set us free like stuff in our faces. But anyway, anyway. Uh but we just have fun with that stuff. But I mean seriously, like what how, Somewhere along the way, wonder became something that we should grow out of, and the Lord said, "No, like that is that's the depth." You know what I mean? Peter had become so bogged down in catching fish that he completely, almost completely, missed who he really was, which was the rock of the church. And if he had not sent his nets out and cast them deeper in a moment of trust, he may have never left everything to follow this man. So, um, so I'm going to pray. And I, like I don't know how to end this. This this is just something I feel like the Lord's really given us today. But like we uh, we're gonna be a people. We're gonna see signs and wonders. But I, the Lord is redefining even for me what a sign and wonder is. Like my let me tell you something. My, I know I'm partial. My daughter is the biggest sign and wonder I've ever seen in my life. I, I, I mean, it, it is to watch her is like I mean she pre she's my preacher. I mean to watch her live her life, and the way that she's wanted. The last day we were at the beach, I'll end with us. The last day we were at the beach, um, seagulls were flying around, and uh, and she was trying to chase them and catch them with a bucket, and uh, chased them everywhere and all that stuff, having a blast. And she didn't know that she couldn't actually catch them. Like you know what I'm saying? And, and in her mind, it never occurred to her that this is impossible because they fly. Never impossibility did not register in her And so she spent half the day chasing these birds and I'm like why don't I chase birds And then I think it's because I know I can't or can I I'm, I'm, see, think about this right there so there there were fish in this little stream. And uh, she was trying to catch the fish, and I was like, I, in my head, you can't catch fish too fast, you know. And, I'll, and literally, in my head, I'm like, I'm the most contemplative pastor you've ever met, because I'm always thinking. But, um, but in my head, I was like, maybe. And so I walk over, and as fast as I could, reach down and grabbed a fish out of the water. You know what I'm saying? It was a tiny one. I mean, a little one. But, um, and then he hopped back out. But it, but it was just like, man, like, I, I wasn't going to do that because I thought it was impossible, she had no thought of what something is impossible means. None. She lives her life based on all things are possible. You know what I mean? And so, we, I, like I said, I could sit around and teach you, you need to have more faith. I don't think you need to have more faith. I think you need to be like a kid. Jesus didn't say, unless you have a bunch of faith, you won't see the kingdom. He says unless you become like a child, you'll never see the kingdom. I don't think faith is our issue. I don't. Let me say it like this. You ready? I don't think you can have the right kind of faith unless you become like a child first. Faith is not. Uh, please, 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 please. I'll do anything. I'll stop looking at that. I promise. I'll stop. I'll stop smoking that. I will stop drinking that. I'll stop drinking alcohol tomorrow if you'll just do this. That's that's not faith. That's dumb. <laughs> you know what I'm That's not faith. Faith is us saying all things are possible and living like all things are possible. Why don't you pray for the people that the Lord kind of puts it on you to pray for? Because in your mind you say, that's probably not going to work. That's impossible. Right? If you become like a kid, you don't say, well, what if I pray for this person and it doesn't work? They're going to think I'm crazy and they're going to tell other people crazy. And then next time I see them, I'm going to have to look weird. You know what I'm saying? If you're like a kid, you say, "Sure," and do it, and whether or not it works, or whether like it works, you know what I'm saying? Like like it's a magic trick, or what? You know what I'm saying? Or whether or not it does whatever. Whether or not you know you see a person walk, or whether or not they walk 20 years from now, and you never see it. Either way, if you're a kid, you just live in this imagination, still in reality, but reality clothed in imagination. So, um. So I'm gonna pray, and then uh, I'm just gonna challenge you this week. Like, I mean, read your Bible, but but read this. This is why I love this thing you guys got me because it's got so many pictures in it. But um, but read this thing. Pick up some poetry. Pick up whatever you need. Fiction, Chronicles, and Narnia. I don't know what you got to do, but we need we need to start tapping into what we what we think and how we believe and how we see things. You know what I'm saying? C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes ever. At this point. He says one day, I quoted this a few weeks ago. He says, one day we'll all be old enough to read fairy tales again. Isn't that amazing? Like, so um, I'm gonna pray and then we'll be we'll be out. Lord, I thank you for this this family. I thank you for what you're doing um in in us. I thank you for sending us into the depth. But Lord, I, I just I speak over every person in this room. I speak in imagination. Over everybody. And we're, and we're not talking about flippant, like living. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living so on purpose. We're just shifting our purpose to something that we do, from something that we do to something that we really are. That's what our imagination is. Our imagination is something that is free of every bit of works that we do. And so, Lord, we're gonna live by that. We're gonna believe that you're gonna do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And through our imagination, we're actually going to image a nation. <laughs> through our imagination, we're actually going to image a nation. So Lord, we honor you. We pray today over every family affected by 9-11 20 years ago. Lord I know, I mean, I, I just was thinking about this this morning. I remember at 10 years old, exactly where I was um, when nine years old, about to turn 10, when this happened. And, um, and Lord, we just, we just speak peace over them. We speak a covering over them that they know that they know that they know that you are working even the most dark, evil moment of our country's history into something that is so extravagantly full of light that it's gonna bring hope and peace and freedom to thousands of others because of it. And so, Lord, we love you in this place. It's in your name, amen.